welcome again to the So House Therapy Podcast. This is a podcast that demystifies, debunks, and destigmatizes what happens in the therapy space. I'm your host, Karen Conlon, and today we are going to talk about a topic that is very widely known, but not widely understood. We are going to cover and demystify obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Now, people who suffer or experience OCD are incredibly impacted in all aspects of their lives. They may be engaging in different types of behaviors for hours at a time or a specific behavior for hours at a time. And it really makes their life difficult, sometimes impacting their ability to maintain a job or to keep up with social relationships. There are the more traditional types of obsessive compulsive disorder symptoms that we all kind of know about and that we hear about and that we see on TV. But today we are also going to talk about the lesser known types of OCDs, like intrusive thoughts and mental compulsions and other types of OCDs that we cannot even imagine that we couldn't even imagine are actually parts of obsessive compulsive disorder. I am super excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Tatiana Mestechkina. She is going to talk to us today a little bit about herself and a lot about OCD. Tatiana, Welcome to the So House Therapy Podcast. How are you? Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. I'm so excited to be here and talk about this. Yes, I'm super, super, super excited to talk about this. This is one of those topics where people tend to use the expression, I'm OCD, he's OCD, she's OCD in a very loose way, not really understanding perhaps, not just what it means, but just how difficult and stigmatizing, uh, actually really living with OCD can be. Now, um, there are two things that I want to mention before we start talking about what is exactly OCD. The first thing is I wanted to provide a, what we call in our world, a trigger alert, because today we may be discussing examples of intrusive thoughts within the context of OCD that have violent or sexual nature or that are of violent or sexual nature. So if this is something that you feel you might have some discomfort with, or if there are children in, you know, in the house with you in the car in the area that maybe assess whether this is something that you're okay with them listening to, um, maybe put your earbuds on like now. The next thing that I kind of wanted to mention was this quote that I found with respect to OCD Tatiana. And this quote says, it is not the content of the thought that distinguishes between people with OCD and those people without OCD, right? The thoughts are the same. It's the interpretation that the person gives the thought that matters. That interpretation is the difference between someone who has OCD and someone who does not. So we're going to explain that a little bit more. Let's start by just giving a general explanation of what is obsessive compulsive disorder, just kind of in layman's terms. Sure, absolutely. So a very kind of oversimplified version of OCD is that we all have this part of our brains called the amygdala. And this part of our brain is responsible for keeping us safe and warning us if there's some sort of danger happening. 
And this part of the brain has been around for as long as humans have been around, has been super helpful. If there was a tiger in the room with us right now and our amygdala wasn't warning us that there was a danger, we might say like, let's watch some Netflix, let's take a nap. And we would probably be dead very, very quickly. So while people with OCD also have a very well-functioning amygdala that's going to warn them when there's a tiger in the room or any other type of danger, it sometimes misfires and sends them this false alarm signal that there's something dangerous, even though there isn't. And the problem with that is that it sounds very, very real. It sounds exactly the same way as it would if there was an actual tiger or fire or whatever was going on. And then the other problem with OCD is that it doesn't respond well and communicate to the logical, rational part of our brain. And if the person in that moment kind of responds to that false alarm signal and treats it as if it's real, they can often find themselves spiraling into the rabbit hole, treating these false alarms as if they're real alarms, therefore validating their brains that this is something important, threatening, and then their brains give them themselves a little imaginary pat on the back saying, I'm doing a great job warning this person because if I wasn't, something dangerous or horrible might happen. And that's sort of kind of the vicious cycle of how OCD works. Right. So what I'm hearing is that part of the brain, that alarm system, that amygdala gets activated and that part of the brain is very primal. It doesn't really respond to rational thoughts. And quite the contrary, when you are experiencing OCD, there is this constant reaffirming, this constant reconfirmation that, no, this is exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be on high alert. This is dangerous. And we have a really difficult time bringing in the reality sometimes of what's really in front of us, right? It's almost like whether it's a tiger chasing you or you're just running late for work, the alert system is the same high response. Exactly. And almost feels irresponsible in that moment to not respond to it. And I would say the majority of people I work with with OCD, at some point when they're not in the OCD episode, are able to say, like, I know this doesn't make sense. I know this isn't logical. I know this is very, very unlikely to be threatening. But in that moment, all of that goes out the window and it feels like the tiger's in the room or their house is on fire. And the kind of urge to act out and treat this as something serious is really, really high. So, you know, so I want to ask you then, is there oftentimes a confusion or a misdiagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder and general anxiety disorder? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because a lot of the things that we're talking about, the amygdala, the, the brain's alarm system sound very similar to what people with general anxiety disorder walk around experiencing. So what's, what's the difference? How do we identify the difference? Yeah. So that is an excellent question. And that is something that's constantly being discussed in the field, even within the OCD expert group. So the way that I think about it is like a big Venn diagram. So if you think about those diagrams with the two big circles, with the overlap between the circles, the the reality is the overlap is very, very large. So the commonalities between OCD and general anxiety disorder, sometimes referred to as GAD, is that both people experience a lot of anxiety, that being the hallmark feature. There tends to be a lot of mental rumination going on, and there's a lot of very low tolerance for uncertainty. Their brains kind of send them on a mission to get answers and to know for sure. With general anxiety disorder, the topics tend to be more exaggerations of everyday worries, like you know, what if I run out of money and can't pay my bills? 
Uh, what if I lose my job? What if this bad weather ruins something that I really, really want to do? And just maybe stuff that everybody worries about, but up a few notches. And with OCD, often the worries are less logical, but not caveat is not always. So a lot of times they're like, what if I murder my husband, even though I love my husband? What if I am in the wrong relationship, even though I might generally be really satisfied with my relationship? Um, What if I want to, I'm attracted to a child, even though I have consenting adult relationships? What if I did something to practice my religion the wrong way and God is mad at me, et cetera. And we'll go into more specific details of that. However, again, the asterisk is it's not always completely illogical. And with OCD, we tend to see more of the compulsive behaviors. So repetitive behaviors, either physically or mentally, to try to kind of undo the thought, escape the thought, more of that kind of urgency and repetition. And then the more important question is, what does that mean for treatment? And the reality is that the treatment that we use for OCD tends to be very effective for people with general anxiety as well. A lot, a lot of overlap with the treatment. The only difference that we see is that with general anxiety, sometimes using cognitive techniques like restructuring unhelpful thinking patterns and using logic can be helpful for some people. And with OCD, that usually is not helpful and sometimes even feeds into the disorder more long-term, or if it's helpful, it's helpful very, very temporarily, but then they want an answer within a few minutes, a few hours. Right. So you've touched on a lot of things that I want to kind of tease out a little bit more. So this Venn diagram, I I'm such a visual person. I love the fact that you mentioned the Venn diagram and we will see if we can have one in the show notes for people who are visual, such as myself, this makes so much sense, right? Uh, now I get it. So OCD on one end, general anxiety disorder or GAD on the other end, and then in the middle where these two circles overlap, this is where we see the similarities and where we can get misdiagnosed or diagnose ourselves sometimes incorrectly because we're not able to see what's on the other ends of each of the spectrums that really identify the difference between OCD and general anxiety disorder general anxiety disorder being that daily exaggeration. What if I can't? What if I do? Why do I always like those types of thoughts that just linger ongoing versus OCD, where sometimes the worries are not always so logical. And also there's this compulsion to need to fix it. And then in terms of the approaches that you're using with general anxiety disorder, the cognitive behavioral approach, right, which is where we help to retrain the brain to help see things in a different way. Maybe we can appraise situation or and reappraise them in a different way find alternatives. There's this flexibility that we can learn when you're dealing with general anxiety disorder versus OCD, which is a little bit more, it sounds like it's a lot more rigid. Yeah, exactly. I think with OCD, there are people's brains on a mission for a hundred percent certainty. And we know in life, what is a hundred percent certain? That's where the rabbit hole kind of comes in. It's a never ending journey. And I can see With wanting 100% certainty, I can see why cognitive behavioral techniques, we have to be careful in applying those because cognitive behavioral techniques are all about, you know, not necessarily knowing anything 100% and being able to have that flexibility or learn to be flexible and looking at other possibilities. Absolutely. And also within OCD therapy, I will add, there is a little bit of room for that at the beginning. 
especially as we're laying the foundation of the therapy, I think it is important to kind of provide someone the education about what OCD is, what isn't, the fact that there's nothing that's 100% certain, the fact that what's feeding the disorder is continuing to look for that certainty. So there's a little bit of that that is helpful and important even at the don't want to use in the moment as the OCD episodes coming up. Yeah. And, and by the way, folks, I know that you will hear some technical glitches and that is just the world that we're living in today in the uh, world of the pandemic. So my apologies for any technical uh, glitches that you hear, but we'll definitely include the details, any details you might miss in the show notes. Tatiana, do we know what causes OCD? That's also a very good question. So the simple answer is we know a lot more than we did before, but we still don't know a lot of it. So, you know, one risk factor, we know that OCD has a genetic component to it. And what that means is that if someone that you're closely biologically related to, like a twin or a sibling or a parent has OCD, you are more likely to get OCD. That doesn't mean that you will, you just might be more vulnerable to it. Um, We also know that there's certain, we have some preliminary research about certain parts of the brain that kind of might be implicated with OCD, certain neurotransmitters like serotonin, glutamate, Uh, again, promising, exciting research, but still a long way to go in terms of fully knowing or making any cause and effect relationships. And we do know that certain things in the environment, like certain stressors might bring on OCD episodes for people who are already biologically vulnerable to it. And I do want to make an important note that it's a very, very common misconception for people, even for therapists sometimes, trauma does not cause OCD. And I repeat, trauma does not cause OCD. So we do know like life stressors and possibly even traumatic events, again, can trigger an OCD episode, but there's no at least scientific knowledge at the moment that there is a direct cause and effect relationship. And that way, in fact, I would say the majority of the patients that I work with have not experienced any sort of trauma. And therapeutically, even if they have experienced a certain trauma, or even if it was sort of around the same time that the OCD came up, therapeutically, it is not helpful, uh, you know, in terms of what the current research says, that the treatment is not learning to kind of uncover or process the trauma. If anything, again, that can feed into the OCD symptoms and exacerbate them. So glad that you're tuning in. This is just a quick reminder that this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not replace treatment by a licensed professional. Ready to hear more? Here you go. So, okay, I'm really glad that you brought this up because there are plenty of books in the, you know, out there in the field that talk about um, OCD or mention OCD as part of one of the ways that people develop to adapt to their environment as a result of trauma. And so this is really interesting that you bring this up because that is something that oftentimes we therapists who are trained in trauma and obviously in anxiety have been taught, at least through some of the literature out there. So this is kind of, for me at least, really um, kind of groundbreaking. And, And this is a perfect example, everyone, of just knowing that you don't have everything 100%, that research 
will always bring about new information. And this is why we need to be flexible and open to understanding what comes up, what's new, different times in history, different things that were the things that made sense. And then research comes out and says, well, no, that, you know, that doesn't make sense anymore, or that doesn't apply anymore. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because that is something that in the trauma field, you know, many of us have read is part of what people do or part of what people develop in order to cope with their environment. I I wanted to ask you also just really quickly, going back to the brain and neurotransmitters, you mentioned serotonin and glutamate, you know, neurotransmitters are basically information messengers. And can you talk a little bit more? I'd like for people to understand the role and the importance of neurotransmitters in their bodies and why this is related to OCD. So what we do know is there's certain types of neurotransmitters such as serotonin and glutamate that are implicated in certain mental health challenges that people experience and tend to kind of regulate mood and whatnot. And those are examples of some of them that have been implicated in OCD. But again, it's also a hard question to know, like, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it that these neurotransmitters are kind of not functioning the way that we'd want and that's causing OCD or someone having OCD, therefore triggering changes in neurotransmitters. And, you know, one of the ideas behind serotonin particularly is that we know SSRIs, which is a class of medications called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Zoloft, Prozac, things like that are considered first-line treatment in OCD from a pharmacological perspective in that way. And those are also medications that are typically given in depression as well. So there's just so much chemically, it sounds like going on biologically. I'd like to talk about the internal world of what it's like for someone who's struggling with OCD. What does that internal world look like? Because, you know, we've been talking about things like genetics and brain structure and environment and, you know, all these things that obviously there are internal factors, but what about the psychological and emotional and social internal world of someone who's struggling with OCD? Can we talk a little bit about what that's like? I think some people might kind of diminish or not understand how incredibly painful this experience could be and how incredibly debilitating this could be, right? If someone is spending a lot of time and energy kind of ruminating, investigating, looking for reassurance or doing, you know, a wide variety of rituals that might A, take up a lot of time in their life that they're not dedicating to the things that are important to them. It might lead them to avoid doing certain things that are meaningful to them, like going to certain social events or riding the subway or going to school or certain relationships or certain TV shows, I think it sometimes makes it really hard for people to be present in their lives and to focus on what they're doing or who they're with and connecting with them if their brains are kind of pulling them away on a journey to engage with the obsessions and the compulsions in that way. And it can also be a really kind of lonely and isolating experience. And the reality is that OCD is very, very common. About two to 3% of the population is estimated to have it. But my guess is honestly, it's even more because it's so often missed and misdiagnosed in that way. A lot of that is because there is certain 
kind of misportrayals of it in the media. So my guess is that there's more than we even know and people are not alone, even though they might feel that way because they think we've come a really long way also in kind of the media in terms of destigmatizing and bringing some attention to it, bringing some good information out there but we still have a long way to go. And a lot of people might not even know that they have OCD, especially some of the less common types, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about. And some of them who know that might not realize how many other people have that because it's not something people chat about at a cocktail party usually. I've worked with a number of clients who we are able to identify, rule out some things and identify that they have some symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder. And when you take a history of their lives and get some history of their childhood, it's like nine times out of 10, I hear, well, when I was a kid, there were some things going on. And there seems to be this not wanting to look at it when they were children and now they're struggling as adults. And it's been a very interesting pattern that I've seen in, in my practice, but typically there's something in their childhood that has pointed to this. And this all makes sense to them now as adults, what, what can parents look for in their kids? And is there a difference in terms of ages? You know, does a six-year-old with potential OCD have different habits potentially than someone who is 12 or 15? So all very great questions. So I think the reality is, you know, even though we kind of in the mental health field like to put labels on things and say it is or it isn't, the reality is OCD falls on a spectrum. And most people, even who wouldn't meet the formal diagnosis of OCD, have done certain things that are kind of in line with obsessions or compulsive, myself included, things that I probably wouldn't have even thought about for a second if I wasn't specializing in this. I'm like, oh yeah, that thing that I did when I was six, that was a little bit of compulsive. Like I remember having a little you know, quote unquote game of like not stepping on certain cracks in that way. And I still do that. I probably wouldn't have thought of it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. A lot of us do certain things where they're repetitive or engage in rumination or make connections that aren't really connections that we logically rationally believe in in that way. But for some people, it's just kind of little quote unquote quirks and little things that happen. And for other people, it can take over their whole life. And yeah, you know, a lot of times OCD does develop in childhood. And some, you know, red flags that we see that are often missed are, like we mentioned, the repetitive behaviors, which are easier to spot if people have more traditional OCD, where their compulsions might be more like hand washing or, you know, knocking on something a certain way or cleaning something a certain time or tapping something or having good numbers, bad numbers, things like that. A little bit more subtle and harder to miss, especially in children if they're mental with things like ruminating, avoidance behaviors could be a red flag of that. Reassurance seeking. So kids asking their parents the same questions kind of over and over again, sort of not taking the answer at face value, things like that. And uh, when you mentioned that, one of the things that came up for me is actually a number of clients have said that they remember counting, you know, between say, you know, say age of six and eight. And I guess when I think about it, I mean, counting is something that at that point, there's a lot of mastery around. It's something that might be easier for them to engage in. And so I remember, you know, people saying, I counted, I counted the books all the time that were on my, in my little shelf, my bookshelf in my room. Um, I counted steps up and down. I counted the steps up and down all the time. 
Yeah, for like checking things, like consistently checking things like the door, the stove, under the bed, in the closet. And the repetition is also a big red flag. And a lot of patients that I work with who are older and we're working, let's say, on a specific OCD theme that's relevant in their lives at the moment, usually within a few weeks of therapy, they're like, oh, that thing that I did when I was eight, that kind of has some OCD red flags. And then when they share with me, it's usually a very classic manifestation of it that they just didn't kind of put two and two together. You mentioned thoughts, right? Like reassurance. So that kind of brought me to my next question here. Relationships. What if you're in a relationship with someone and they're exhibiting some symptoms of OCD, but they're not obvious? What could those look like? Mm -hmm. So really similar to kind of the question with the children, a lot of it is kind of rumination, having a hard time being present, reassurance seeking, asking the same questions over and over again, Googling, investigating, anything that's sort of like the repetitive nature of it. And this is really hard because sometimes the OCD themes even latch on to the relationship themselves. And I'll be happy to give some examples of that. But even regardless of that, I think that can create kind of confusion and disconnect in people's relationship or even sometimes frustration. Like, why is my, you know, boyfriend or why is my roommate constantly asking me the same question over and over again? Or why are they getting frustrated at me if I don't arrange things a certain way or clean things a certain way or just whatever. I mean, the interesting thing about it is it can latch onto anything and everything. So I think about the partner's perspective who let's say is living or in a relationship with someone with not so traditional OCD, let's say, or maybe with the traditional OCD, but you know, just not so obvious. If the partner feels like the dishes aren't out of the sink before, you know, my partner gets home and they start feeling flustered around it or feeling very nervous, like, oh my gosh, I have to get this done because I know that that there's going to be a reaction around it. Um, and not necessarily not a, we're not talking about a violent reaction. We're talking about a specific type of reaction. What might that reaction look like? We don't live in a, in a vacuum. And a lot of times when people have certain rituals, it does involve their environment. And sometimes people, especially partners who they live with in that way. So it could be very kind of confusing when someone's partner is doing things that seem very illogical in that way. And oftentimes what I find is just the partner and the person experiencing the OCD having a name for it, having a diagnosis that's confirmed by a mental health professional who has the qualifications of doing so can be so freeing in a certain way, right? A lot of people kind of don't like a lot of mental health labels, but with OCD, oftentimes I actually find it brings people a lot of relief oh my gosh, I'm not the only one experiencing these things. I'm not going crazy. I'm not a psychopath. I'm not this horrible person, but it makes sense that I've been experiencing this because this is part of this OCD experience. I think the first step, even knowing and understanding that can bring so much relief both to the person experiencing it and to their partners who then I think are able to at least start the journey of having more kind of empathy, compassion, and understanding how this works. My partner isn't just kind of controlling or mean or irrational, but here's what's happening in their brains that's creating a lot of pain and sometimes suffering in their lives. And often the biggest challenge, I think, for loved ones with people with OCD is how to support someone with OCD. And this could be a whole other podcast episode. But the tricky thing is that balance between kind of validating and supporting and being there with the person without giving them reassurance or feeding into the theme. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into part two of this episode, where we'll dive deep into the lesser known types of OCD, how different treatment modalities can affect outcomes and more.